The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. It doesn't take long for a kid to begin to figure out winning and losing. I'm, I'm helping actually coach my son's soccer team this year. Now, I'm not the head coach. I don't know much about soccer, actually, but I am helping. And one of the, one of the observations about being, being a part of the, of the soccer games is every kid, now, now, the, now the kid's age is kindergarten, first, second grade, so there is no scorekeeping at this point. But every single kid on the field knows the score of the game. Like, you don't, you don't have to teach the kid, even though nobody, there's no scoreboard, there's no signs. Every kid knows who's the winner and who's the loser, it, to, to the point that, like, throughout the game, they're even asking, like, oh, who scored this time, or what's the score, or who's winning, who's losing, and then afterwards, you'll have to, like, that they know if they won or lost. Uh, not, a few weeks ago, I actually had a chance to take um, Eli with, my wife and, and I took Eli to a Lions game. And so we actually went to one of the Lions preseason games. And so we did all the fun things that you do with a kid at a Lions game. You, have, you get all the snacks, you go to the store, you buy some little Lego souvenirs. You even get one of those foam fingers that hit you and everybody around you the entire game. And so, so I'm like fired up, like, all right, we're at a football game. We're, we're, we're watching the game. We're having fun. And so I ask him at about halftime, I was like, are you having fun? He just looks at me and he says, we came all this way and the Lions have zero points. To, what, to, to which I'm like, yeah, this is our life. Welcome to it. Um, but but it, it didn't take long for him to understand, like, points and scores. Uh, just, just this last week, I was playing a board game with, with my daughter. And because I'm a good dad, I want to teach my kids about losing them. And that daddy is actually better at the game than you. And so I, I won. And she throws herself on the floor because she doesn't like how it feels to lose. Like, our, our kids, like, it very quickly, they start to figure out there's a difference between winning and losing, and it, and it creates this competition and this drive, and it's actually helpful for a lot of things. Like, if you don't know about winning and losing, it, it will impact the way you actually play a sport. It will impact how you play the game and why you play the game. It, but the thing is, for kids, like, that is very intuitive. They figure it out quickly. But what I think is also true, I think those, some of these same kind of concepts are helpful for when we think about what it means to be a part of God's family, for what it means to be a part of the church. In fact, Scripture itself would even use language about winning when it comes to our relationship with God and when it comes to what we're trying to do as a church. But I think that same idea of winning is far less intuitive for most of us than it is when it comes to sports. Right, because for, for sports, we have, we have scoreboards, and we, we figure it out very quickly, but there's no scoreboard in here. Like, there's no countdown clock that, that is saying, all right, here's how long till Jesus comes back, and here's the points. And even if there were points, like, what would be the points? Like, what, what, is it baptisms? Is it, is it how many people are here? Is it offered? Like, what, is, what are the points? But I think it could be helpful as if we ask that question, what does winning look like in the church? What, what does it mean for us to win, when the scripture talks about it, what, what is it all about? If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The book of Corinthians is, is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes. And he writes, he's a church planter, he's a missionary. And so he's ch starting churches. And so he writes letters to these churches. And he writes letters to leaders in the churches in order to help them think about what God has called them to do in order to help them understand what does it look like for them to reach their communities, their cultures, for the sake of Jesus. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians, I want us to spend some time looking at what does Paul say about winning and the church. 
Now today we're continuing our series called Four. And throughout this series, we've been asking the question, what would it look like if the church was known more by what it was for than what it was against? Because it's probably no surprise to you that a lot of people, when they think of the church, they think of all the things that the church stands against, that the church is opposed to. But what if that could be different? What if the church was known for serving? That when people thought of us as a community, that they thought, or that, that's the place. They looked for opportunities to serve, to reach out to people who maybe don't look like them or believe like them or think like them. And people maybe who aren't even asking for it, but people who have something to need. And so they reach out and serve. And we've asked, what, what would it look like if we were forgiving what if we were known for our generosity? This is why throughout the series we've encouraged you to think about what would it look like to give a gift of, of just nineteen ninety five, of 20 bucks to Victory Lutheran? Not, not because of something we get from it, but simply as a church. What if we were known for seeing a community in the, in the Upper Peninsula, Victory Lutheran? What if we saw that community and simply said, all right, we want to just give, give, give away to them because what we have could help bless their people and their neighbors and their community. And so throughout that, we've raised over $25,000 for victory, not as a way to pat ourselves on the back, but because there are a group of people who have a need. We've asked, what would it look like if we were, as a church, were known for loving? That when it came to our families and our coworkers and our neighbors, we asked the question, what does love require of me in this situation? Last week, we kind of narrowed that focus and not only asked, what does love require, but asked, now, who are people? Who are people in our lives? We, we call them people of peace, people who God has already been working on, that God has already been preparing for you to talk to, to sit and eat with, to have a conversation with, to have, give an invitation. Today, what I want us to think about is what does it mean for us collectively as God's people now to look at the world around us, to look at our communities, to the people who are far from God in order to reach them for Jesus, And one of the words that Paul will use in order to help us understand the mission is this, this idea of freedom. And that freedom that he, he describes is not just for our, it's not for our own benefit. It's for other people. Because see, if we don't exist for other people, freedom won't matter. Because, mo because most of us, when it comes to the things that we are a part of, we don't really want freedom. We want what we want. And we want everybody else to go along with what we want, what we like, what we'd prefer. But when Paul encourages freedom and when Paul is trying to remind his church of what it means to be for other people, he says freedom is required because it, it requires you to sacrifice, to give up certain things for the sake of someone else. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 9. I'll start in verse 19. Paul writes this. He says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. All right, let's unpack that for a minute, because I think there are some important things that define how we do what God has called us to do. 
And so Paul here starts and he makes these, these two different statements that are seemingly contradictory. That they, they seem like they stand in opposition together. When he says, All right, I, I'm free, I belong to no one. But then on the other hand, he says, I've made myself a slave. Now Paul's trying to communicate two very distinct ideas. And so on one hand, he's saying, I, I've, I belong to no one. In other words, nobody else is calling the shots. There's not somebody controlling the message. There's not some wealthy patrons who are funding my paycheck that are deciding, all right, this is what you can say or not say. Paul, wa- Paul wants to make sure everybody in the church of Corinth knows that he's not slave to anyone, that he doesn't belong to anyone, that his only allegiance is his, his allegiance to Jesus. And so he says, this is the message. My message isn't because of anyone other than Jesus. And so this is what I share. But then he makes this other statement and says, at the same time, I'm slave to everyone. And so this creates an important reality for Paul because his allegiance is to the message of Jesus. And so the message doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. The promise doesn't change. But Paul says, because I'm slave to everyone, how I do what I do will change. Because I'm slave to everyone, when I want to reach that person, I might speak about it this way. When I want to reach the other person, I might talk about it differently. And so Paul says the message doesn't change because his allegiance is to Jesus, but he's made himself slave. He's given up his own rights, his own preferences for the sake of people who need Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't change, but how he gives people Jesus changes in so many different situations. And so then Paul says, the reason I do this is very simple. He says, the reason is to win as many as possible. In just a few verses, Paul talks about winning five times. So if you want to know, what does it mean to be winning as a church? It's winning people to Jesus. It's bringing Jesus into every relationship. That's, that's the win. The win isn't the amount of people in the seats. And, I, and, and, and hear me, I want people in the seats, but that's just not the win. The win is people being brought into Jesus in relationship, whether that happens in a baptism, whether it happens in a, in a small group with an adult who's investing in the life of a kid, whether it happens when a parent's re- talking about Jesus while their kid's in bed. The win is winning people to Jesus, whether that be when, when your neighbor comes to Jesus at a, at a special event or over a conversation. Winning is when your kid makes that comment about the Bible that proves to you that Jesus has been winning over her heart. Winning is that moment when your kid wouldn't open up to you, but they opened up to their small group leader, and you knew that their small group leader was telling them exactly what you would want to tell them, but they wouldn't hear it from you. And so you know that God was winning them over in a moment where they felt like they had no one to go to. Winning is that moment when your coworker who wants nothing to do with Jesus and still says, all right, I'm not so sure about the whole God thing, but I'll come. I'll, I'll do that. And it's those little moments over time that become the points on the board. So the points are pretty simple. It's the moments, it's the conversations, it's the interactions that over time God is working through to win people to himself. The win is people being saved. The win is people being in a relationship with Jesus. And so Paul says, all right, if that's the win, if that's what we're after, 
now we can talk about the game plan. Because once you know what it is to win, and once you know how to get points on the board, then you can have a plan. Then you can, then you can start to diagram who's going to do what, and how are we going to do this? And so Paul says his plan is that to the Jew, become like the Jews. And to those under the law, become like those under the law. To those without the law, become like those without the law. To the weak, become like the weak. Paul's saying that for different people, he's got to do different things. And so for the, to the Jews and to those under the law, it's, it's kind of the same group of people. It's those who, who know the scriptures, who've studied the scriptures. For the Jews, they followed 613 laws, and they celebrated these feasts and festivals. And Paul says, all right, in order to reach them, I need to become like one of them. And so we even see this throughout the scriptures. When Paul is reaching out to the Jews, he's in the synagogue. He's debating with them. He's talking about the scriptures to them. He's telling them what the scriptures teach about the prophecies and the promises of Jesus. He celebrates the feasts and the festivals. He'll even lean into his own experience as a Jew. And so he does that in order to gain credibility with the Jews. Why? In order that he might win some of them to Jesus. And then to those without the law, which is just another way of saying to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean that there aren't rules or regulations. He simply says there, all right, there's the Jews and then there's the Gentiles. There's the Jews and the, there's those on the inside. There's everybody else. And so Paul says, but in order to reach them, I have to do something different. Because they don't study the scriptures. They don't believe the scriptures. And so for Paul, for some, he becomes like the Jews. But then for others... He has to do things differently. Now, I think this is where the challenge can be for us as Christians, because I think a lot of times what happens is many of us begin to have a similar kind of experience as the first century Jews did when they came to Jesus. Because for them, they were first. They were the insiders. They studied the scriptures. They knew it. And then Jesus kind of widens the circle. And other people who didn't know what they knew start to be brought in. And so they start to be concerned. Like, all right, what do we do with all these people who don't believe everything that we believe? They don't do all the things that we do. And what are we going to do? And it makes them uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times for us as the church, the longer we're around it, the longer we are a part of it, we become the insiders. And so it gets challenging to think, all right, what would it mean if I have to give up something I like in order to reach somebody who's not here? That makes us uneasy. And so Paul says his strategy isn't, well, don't offend, don't offend the insiders. That's not the plan. His strategy is do whatever it takes to win people to Jesus, whatever is necessary. And so he says for those who don't have the law, no, he still honors God, he still follows Jesus, he still does what's right. But for those who don't follow the 613 commands, those who, who have a different dietary law, well, he'll go where they are. He'll meet them in those places. Now, what I think is also interesting about the Gentiles in Paul's day is much like our own culture, they don't know the Bible. But the Gentiles aren't studying the Hebrew Scriptures. They don't care what the Hebrew Scriptures say. And so as much as Paul wants to teach them about Jesus, who the Scriptures prophesied to, they don't know the prophecies. See, in our own world, the Bible says so doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. And so just like in Paul's day, there's this group of people who don't know the Bible or study the Bible or believe the Bible. Even in our own day, there's a whole bunch of people who just don't care what the Bible has to say. And so Paul says, I'm going to know that, but I'm still going to give them Jesus. He just has to do it differently. So I think the best way that we can understand what this 
strategy looks like, how it actually plays out, is simply to look, what, well, what does Paul actually do? When, it, when he actually engages with people who aren't a part of the family, what, what does it actually look like? In Acts chapter 17, there's this group of philosophers who are debating with Paul. And after they hear Paul talk, they make this statement. They say, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, they're saying this, referencing that Paul is talking about Jesus. Paul is talking about the death and resurrection. And they're like, well, we haven't heard this before. Who is this guy? What is he talking about? And so Paul decides in that moment he is going to talk to them about Jesus. And so it tells us in verse 22 that Paul, he stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. All right, so imagine Paul, he's there meeting with these philosophers. They hear him talking about Jesus. They're like, what are you talking about? And so he stands up and he says, all right, let me, let me tell you something. And he begins to walk around and he, and he sees these different altars and he approaches one that just, that, that's empty and says, to an unknown God. And so he says, I see that you're very spiritual. You actually care about meaning and hope and purpose and all of these things. And so let me tell you about what's been missing. It's a, all right, I see that you're looking and searching for something more. Let me tell you about that. And now what's so interesting, Paul doesn't even deconstruct here all the problems with all their other ways of thinking. He simply says, there's something more that you're looking for. Now let me tell you about it. And he begins to tell them about Jesus without using the Bible. Because, because again, they don't believe it. They don't care what the Hebrew scriptures say. Now, now Jesus is actually going to point them to what the Hebrew scriptures say. He just does it and they don't know that he's talking about the Bible. Jesus convinces them to believe the Bible without them knowing they're actually believing the Bible. And so he begins to talk to them and says, all right, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. And God did so that they would seek and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. He says, let me tell you about this unknown God. He has made everything. He is Lord over heaven and earth. He has appointed all of the times and places throughout history. And Paul would say, even in fact, not only that, but he actually designed this, designed it all for this kind of moment that to, so that you would be looking for something. And this God that you're looking for, he's not actually very far away. And then what Paul does, it's, it's so incredible. He then says, for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So this God, this incredible creator God who's designed you to have this longing, that designed you to actually need Jesus, to be looking for Jesus, to be searching for God. He says, we are that God's children. We're his offspring because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you have been made an offspring of God. And now here's what's incredible about what Paul did in that moment. You may not even notice, but he says, as some of your own poets have said, not as the Bible said, but as your own poet, which means that Paul quotes pagan poets in order to tell them about Jesus. Like Paul is actually, which also means he had to read the pagan prophets and poets. Like he actually had to be familiar enough that in that moment, he's just like, oh, we're just talking about God. Oh, let me, let me quote you from one of your guys. 
Let, let me tell you what he says, and let me tell you, all right, that, that statement, it's actually true. It's just not true about what you thought it was true about. It's true about God. He says, so as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And in that moment, the words of a pagan become the word of God. So Paul does that for them. In that moment, he says, all right, we're not, I'm just going to, I just need to get you to Jesus because I, that's, what we're, that's what it's all about, winning you over to Jesus. We'll sort through the details later, but let's win you over to Jesus. It'd be like in our own day. Like, I think you could do the same kind of thing with, with movies. In storytelling, there's one of the common principles of storytelling that you see a lot in, like, superhero movies is, is a, the hero's journey. And so I think you can see the same thing. Like, if you watch any superhero movie, there's always this moment where the hero has to give up everything for the sake of other people, for the sake of his city, for the sake of his community, for the sake of humanity. Why is it that that moves us? Is it just because it's a good story, or is there some, something deeper within us that just, that just grasps on to the redemptive kind of story, where there's a hero who gives up everything? Is it just good storytelling, or does it point us to a greater story? See, that's not the Bible, but it's preaching the Bible, isn't it? And so that's what Paul would do. He would preach Jesus. Another place you can find this is in Galatians chapter 2. Now, what I love in Galatians chapter 2, Paul and Peter actually get into this conflict. And what I love about that is we can look around the church. We can look around and see amongst Christians all the time is that you get Christians talking about church and they are fighting with each other. And so Peter and Paul, like that happens with them too. Like they're the apostles. They started the whole deal. And so they get into this argument about how they're trying to reach people. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul decides he needs to confront Peter. In verse 12, here's what it says. It says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. In other words, but Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they, the Jewish people, arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. In other words, Peter was good eating with the Gentiles. He was good hanging out with the outsiders in order to win them over to Jesus. But once the religious people started coming around, once the insiders showed back up, he says, I need to back up a little bit. And then in verse 13, it says, then the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Other people saw him, and he's one of the leaders of the church, and so he's backing off on that. And so they say, well, maybe we should do that too. And then, so that because of their hypocrisy, it says, even Barnabas was led astray. And I think that is why Paul then decides, I need to get involved now. Because when somebody gets led astray from the gospel because of the, because of the behavior of a religious leader, Paul's like, all right, we're not going to just let that stand. And so Paul decides that he's going to call Peter out. Verse 14, it says, when I saw, when Paul saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you act like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Paul pushes Peter and says, you're not, you're not acting in line with the gospel. Like the gospel, yeah, it confronts people with the reality of their sin. But it doesn't do so in order to push them away from God. No, as they come to the reality of their sin, it invites them in. It invites them in to the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And so when people are led astray, Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to do that. 
So, so what does this mean for us as a church? See, if we want to be, if we as a church want to be for winning people to Jesus, we should do whatever it takes to win some. We should do whatever it takes. And so this can be pretty simple, yet at the same time, very difficult. It might mean that sometimes on a Sunday morning, the language might just not be so churchy. It might mean that, we, that sometimes we've got to change up the language, not change the message, but change the way we say things because people don't know what we're talking about. In fact, a recent, a recent survey came out, and the results said that only 7% of Americans have regular religious conversations, which means that when you and I talk about sin and grace, there's a whole bunch of people who have no idea what we're talking about. And it doesn't mean we don't talk about sin and grace. It just means we need to make it clear what we're talking about because there's a lot of people who don't know what we're saying when we say what we're saying. And so sometimes we got to adjust how we say what we say. We don't adjust what we say, but we change how we say it in order to reach people. Sometimes it means we do say those things, but we need to explain those things because people just have no clue. It means that sometimes if you walk around and you see what happens with kids or teenagers here, you might look and say, oh, man, they... they they're, they're just having a lot of fun, which is true. The, the kids have a lot of fun. You'll see, right, chaos at times, fun at times. You'll, we even have events where, like, helicopters drop thousands of eggs. Why? That's not just because we want to draw a crowd. It's because fun becomes a platform for truth. And we know that when fun becomes a platform for truth, it ha- gives us an opportunity that some kids might be won over to Jesus. And because of that, it's all worth it. That means that sometimes when you come, like sometimes you might not like the music, and that's okay because it might not be for you. Like you might not like the style, you might not like the instruments, you might not like any of that, and that's okay because it might reach somebody who's not you. And sometimes you might not like a song because you might not like it for an opposite reason. You might not like it because the, the words are too old. But maybe, maybe for somebody else, that wins somebody to something far bigger than right here and now and connects them to a grander story of Christians that all throughout the centuries. And so sometimes we don't like it. But that's what freedom's about. Sometimes it's not about us, is it? And that means that, that for us, we're going to be pretty obsessed with the grace of God. Not because there's not other things to talk about, but simply because we believe that the thing that wins people to Jesus is actually Jesus. The thing that actually wins people to Jesus is the grace, that God's unconditional love, a love that doesn't come because we've done it right, but simply because Jesus has decided that he's giving it up all for you. This is who we are. And it's not the only way to do things. In fact, there's a lot of other ways to do things. We believe that churches are free to do this in so many different ways. And not only are churches free to do that, I believe that we need churches that do it differently. And this has been a process for me that I've not always felt this way. I've often looked at church, I would say, a bit arrogantly that I know how church should be done, but the other churches, well, I don't know about them. And this, and it may sound funny, but it's something that I've needed to repent of because I've looked at other churches and say, well, we can't do that. But maybe we should think differently because maybe the traditional church down the road might reach somebody that we won't reach. And maybe the secret church down the road might meet, reach some people that we won't reach. 
And maybe when we are who God made us to be, we might reach some people that they won't reach. Because I think together we might reach more people than if we required everybody to do exactly the same thing. And so we are who God created us to be for the sake of people who aren't here. And we are in a big, big world with so many people who don't know Jesus. And we need every church we can get to do whatever it takes for the sake that some might be won over to Jesus. See, freedom isn't for ourselves. The freedom that we have, is, it's not for us. It's not to meet our own needs. It's not to serve our styles and preferences. The freedom is for them. It's for the people who aren't here. And we absolutely should do anything we can to reach those people. And this isn't a new idea. Jesus does this better than anyone else. If you, if you want to know how far God is willing to go in order to win some, look no further than Jesus. Paul himself says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, who is God, came down from the throne. He took on human flesh and lived in this world among us. He was hurt by his friends. He was ridiculed. He suffered. And ultimately, he was crucified. If you want to know how far is God willing to go in order to win some, that's how far he's willing to go. He gave it all up for you. His death and resurrection is exactly how far God is willing to go. And so Paul says, Jesus became sin. That's how far God's willing to go. That Jesus became sin so that you and I might become righteous, which is just a big fancy word of saying you and God are cool, that we're we're good. We, we, we got put back into a right relationship with God, that our relationship with God is now the way it should be, not because we did something or figured it out, but simply because Jesus became sin, so everything that Jesus deserved, he just traded that. And so we get that, and he, he gets sin. And so then Jesus dies, sin dies with him. And so Paul when he writes this letter to the church of Corinth, he says, it's quite simple. Look how far God's willing to go for you. He's given it up all for you. And then as he writes to his church family, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, I'm going to follow Jesus' lead. I'm going to give up some of the things I want for the sake of somebody who's not here. He says, follow my lead. I'm going to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to put aside what I want, and I'm going to try to live my life for the sake of someone else. He says, now you follow me. Because together, we are collectively going to look for what does it take to win somebody. Let's pray. Jesus, you are an incredible God Thank you for doing whatever it takes to rescue us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Yet you give up everything for us. So Jesus, we pray that as a church, we would be, that we would be and do the things that you've called us to do, that we would be your people, that we would go where you send us, and that we would do whatever it takes to win some. 
Jesus, we pray that we would set aside our preferences for the sake of somebody else. Jesus, we pray that we would be willing to go where no one else is willing to go. Jesus, we pray that you would convict us of times when we don't look at all of this the way that you do. Instead, we think selfishly. And Jesus, we pray that as a church, that in this family, in this community, that people every day would be won over to you. We pray that we would hear stories and testimonies of your work, of your power, as people's lives are changed because of what happens in this place and through your people. Jesus, help us to be that kind of church.